Welcome to Renal Cell Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with three clinical investigators in this field during the June ASCO meeting in Chicago, where a great deal of important new information was presented. To begin, Dr. Robert Figlin reviews a key oral presentation he delivered evaluating the survival impact of sunitinib as first-line therapy of metastatic disease. By way of history, this is the trial that has really changed the nature of the standard treatment of kidney cancer. It's a trial that started off in previously untreated renal cancer patients with metastatic disease. It's a trial whose primary endpoint were progression-free survival and objective response rate. And in 2006, in January, resulted in the approval of Sutent, or Sunitinib, for the treatment of metastatic kidney cancer. It demonstrated a more than two-fold prolongation in progression-free survival. It demonstrated a almost 40% objective response rate, complete and partial, and approximately 80% of patients benefiting from the treatment with disease control. Sutent in that trial was given as the package insert, 50 milligrams orally daily, four weeks on, two weeks off. And this was the first report and the final report of that survival analysis. And I think it's important to recognize that progression-free survival is important and response rates are important, but still the gold standard in oncology is, are our patients living longer? So we looked at the 750 patients. We compared the sunitinib-treated patients to the interferon-treated patients, and we demonstrated a survival of 26.4 months compared with the control group of interferon of about 21 months. So let me put that in context for people. The trial was designed to improve survival by 37.5%, 13 months to 17 months, because the median survival for kidney cancer patients metastatic in the era of interferon-based therapy is about 13 months. So the first thing that you would have to take a step back and understand is you'd say, well, okay, with a p-value of 0.05, we have a difference in survival of the sunitinib-treated patients and the interferon-treated patients by just under five months, but the control group had a survival of 21 months, eight months better than the historical group. How does one explain that? And one explains that through a variety of analyses of the trials, and let me go through that with you. First, when the progression-free survival became known, uh, it was no longer ethical to not offer interferon-treated patients at the time of progression sunitinib. So in 2006, patients on interferon that were progressing could roll over to sunitinib. So what happens is that if you look at the patients who receive sunitinib and you censor the 25 patients that rolled over to sunitinib from interferon, the survival difference is about 26 and a half months versus about 20 months, about a six-month difference. And then if you go one step further and ask the question, what happened to people that just received sunitinib versus people that just received interferon? We did that analysis, and the analysis was a 28-month survival for sunitinib-treated patients and a 14-month survival for interferon-treated patients. Why the difference? The difference is that it's easy to measure survival in a stationary group of patients where novel treatments are not becoming available. It's often very difficult to measure survival when there's new paradigm shifts taking place. So a third of the interferon-treated patients, either on study or off study, receive sunitinib at some time during their life. 59% of the patients on the interferon-treated group received some post-study treatment that included sunitinib, Nexivar, mTOR inhibitors, cytokines, or chemotherapy. So in part, the closeness of the survival is explained because of the post-study treatments that became available for the interferon-treated group. My conclusions were pretty straightforward, and that is that this is the first clear and unequivocal demonstration of a survival benefit for metastatic kidney cancer patients against our historical groups. 
and that really for the first time, for those of us that have been treating kidney cancer for decades, a more than two-year survival with metastatic disease. We reported in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2007 that approximately 80% of the patients will have some reduction in their tumor in the absence of progression over the course of their treatment. So that by itself for the community physician knows that when you walk into a patient's room, and I do this in my own practice, people ask me, what is the likelihood that I will benefit? And I can now tell them that there's an 8 in 10 chance that they will benefit from using this drug in their disease. The numbers that we presented were a 39% objective response rate independently verified and an 11th month progression-free survival independently verified. I'd just like to say one other thing, and this is for the community practice oncologists. The easiest way to determine that we're helping people with kidney cancer is that our practices are growing because people are living longer. I've heard that. And they're coming back more frequently. They're staying on treatment longer. And what's happening is it used to be you saw a kidney cancer patient with metastatic disease. In a relatively short period of time, they would succumb to their cancer. They are not succumbing. You will take care of patients, if you're an oncologist, for years. And you have, I mean, if the median survival is two years, some people do significantly better. And you see this in breast cancer, too, that there's a subset that seems, you, know, you hear about metastatic breast cancer as a chronic disease, which, you know, you can question that. So you're seeing people, I mean, because these drugs haven't really been around that long. I mean, do you have patients who are at five years? So we have one of the longest people on from the original phase two trials that is now over four and a half years. She's leading an active and perfect life. Her disease is under control. On sunitinib? On sunitinib. For four and a half years? Four and a half years. Not complete remission. Must be maintained on drug. So you mean you cut back and the tumor grows? Correct. Really? And, And that's another thing for the practicing oncologist to understand. These responses and this benefit are what we would characterize as maintained remissions, not unmaintained remissions. People must continue on these drugs. Otherwise, the cancer will start to grow again. Just about this patient, I'm kind of curious, what kind of toxicity issues have you dealt with over the last four and a half years? Right. So her major toxicity was fatigue. Her second major toxicity was hand-foot syndrome. And the reason that she's now on 37 and a half milligrams instead of the full 50 milligrams is because of those two toxicities. And at 37 and a half milligrams, she's able to maintain an active and full life. Any progress in getting biologic markers to pick out people like this as opposed to people who don't respond? Right. So I think we have tested, we have looked, but in the clinical practice in the community, I can tell you that academically most of us think that maybe circulating VEGF levels Hmm. may predict for who might and who might not benefit. But the reality is, is that in a community setting, we don't have a verifiable biomarker that can predict who will and who will not. I mean, how about in a research setting? I mean, does circulating VEGF look like it's going to work? Yeah, circulating VEGF in retrospective studies looks positive. Hmm. We also know that there seems to be a bit of a difference, and we can talk about this later, between clear cell carcinoma and tumors that have other than clear cell components because it appears that tumors with more non-clear cell components don't do as well. And is there translational work to support why that's the case? I think that if you ask me what's the key question that is unanswered in kidney cancer antiangiogenesis therapy, it would be a very simple answer. We do not know whether the treatment is working on the adjacent endothelial cell or on the tumor cell itself. And until we understand that difference, we may not understand exactly how to best optimize the therapy. Now, what about these issues as it relates to BEV, circulating VEGF, et cetera? Right. So when you give a VEGF receptor... TKI, sunitinib, serafinib, new drug pezopinib, if it ever becomes available or when it becomes available. In response to the receptor inhibition, there is increase in circulating VEGF. So one of the differences between an antibody like bevacizumab mm, right. and a TKI like sunitinib is that the circulating VEGF levels will be driven down by bevacizumab where they won't be driven down by But I mean, for example, has circulating VEGF pre-BEV been looked at as a predictor to respond to BEV? We have not seen that data yet. 
although Bernard Escudier presented an abstract form in the session in the talk right after mine, at least a hypothesis-generating concept that people who had lower than median levels of circulating VEGF did differently than those with high circulating levels of VEGF pre-therapy. Those who had high VEGF levels pre-therapy didn't do as well as those that had lower VEGF levels. And I assume that they looked at it afterwards and they dropped on the bed? Absolutely. They drop uniformly. Can you just, maybe we should bring in that paper too and kind of circle back to this whole issue of anti-angiogenesis. Can you kind of capsulize what your take was out of that study, maybe also comment on specifically what they looked at? Yeah, so there are two trials, one of which was reported by Bernard Escudier from Gustave Roussy in Paris which look at bevacizumab in combination with interferon when compared with interferon. Theirs is what's called the Averin trial. And what they've shown is that unequivocally, bevacizumab and interferon improves progression-free survival and responses when compared with interferon therapy itself. In subset analyses presented by Bernard, some interesting things came up. You know, that takes us back to our Tarsiva and skin toxicity days. People think that sometimes you can correlate erlotinib benefit in lung cancer patients with cutaneous toxicity, that the skin may be a surrogate biomarker for activity. Well, what they looked at is they looked at hypertension. And it was quite interesting. If patients became more hypertensive with the approach of bevacizumab interferon, they were more likely to benefit from bevacizumab interferon than those that did not become more hypertensive. So many of us are asking, is hypertension a surrogate on-target effect for the benefits of these anti-angiogenesis drugs? Kidney cancer patients are unique. 90% of them don't have their kidney in, so which means that they only have one remaining kidney. So it may be that the generation of hypertension is easier for a person with a single kidney than a breast cancer patient or a colon cancer patient with two. It's also important to recognize that the breast slash colon are often in combination with other drugs, whereas we're talking about monotherapy treatment, and it may be the anti-angiogenic effect can be blunted by these other things that we give, not the anti-angiogenic effect, but the anti-hypertensive effect may be blunted, where it's just a pure on-target effect in kidney cancer. What about the issue of VEGF rebound? This also is an issue that's coming out in different tumor types. How long do you use anti-VEGF therapy, et cetera? What are your thoughts about that? Well, I think that the thing that we're now focusing on is mechanisms of resistance. So it's one thing to be able to say that a patient has an 80% chance of responding. It's another thing to be able to understand that at some point they will stop responding. And what is the mechanism for that stop responding? And one of the possible mechanisms is this rebound, VEGF, other angiogenic pathways. The one thing that our oncology community has to recognize, even though we're spending enormous amount of time and effort on the VEGF pathway, there are many angiogenic pathways in cancer, VEGF being only one. So there are many escape mechanisms that tumors have been able to develop over years to escape just VEGF inhibition. You know, the other thing that I'm just kind of starting to become aware of is the issue of the fact that maybe a lot of these drugs aren't as simple as we think they are, that they just hit one pathway. You know, they're, quote, dirty and actually hitting multiple pathways. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I don't think as much as the world wants to have us assume that the benefits from a drug like sunitinib or bevacizumab are related to single pathway inhibition, drugs like Nexavar and Sutent hit more than just a single pathway. Now, there's good news and bad news about that. The good news is if the cancer is driven by more than one pathway, you get benefit. The bad news is if you hit other pathways, you get toxicity. And it always has to be a balance between risk and benefit. And I would say for the practicing oncologist, it's probably more important to categorize the agent and the benefit for a disease than to try and silo anti-angiogenesis as the causative reason that those things are benefiting. So, for example, we're going to see a lot of information at this ASCO and other meetings about the use of sunitinib and bevacizumab and others in other diseases. The bevacizumab is a great example. In breast cancer, in colon cancer, in lung cancer, bevacizumab in part makes chemotherapy better. 
in kidney cancer, it has nothing to do with chemotherapy. So, And plus it has a monotherapy response rate. Right. So I think that we can't just say that it always acts the same in every disease because we're not that smart and because we don't know the science just well enough yet. And then in terms of Bev, there's ovary, which is even more interesting. I think we have a good understanding of that. I mean, I think that ovarian cancer in a hypoxic environment overexpresses angiogenic factors. We know that some of the remarkable results in ovarian cancer with bevacizumab and controlling ascites and stopping the tumor cells from producing that fluid has been a great benefit to patients with ovarian cancer. But it is a VEGF-driven event. And it'll be interesting to see whether things like receptor inhibitors accomplish the same thing because one would expect that if the ascites in ovarian cancer is because of the ligand, the VEGF ligand, that giving something like sunitinib might not help because it drives up the ligand. And I have actually heard anecdotally that people have tried the TKIs in ovarian cancer and have not seen the benefit clinically as they have seen with bevacizumab. Anything new in terms of sort of basic research in renal cancer, particularly in terms of the biology and the connection to these novel agents? I think that, again, for the practicing oncologist, the next big class of drugs that they have to get their hands around as it relates to kidney cancer is understanding the biology of what's called mTOR. So mTOR stands for mammalian target of rapamycin. It is a distinct pathway from the angiogenic pathway. It also is activated through genetic abnormalities associated with kidney cancer biology. And it seems to be associated with diseases that are one, Prognosis is a little less well. So, for example, the reason that Tempsirolimus was approved a year ago was in, quote, poor prognosis patients with an improvement in survival. And I'd like to talk about the results of the RAD data, which are a second set, but RAD is an oral mTOR inhibitor. It's given 10 milligrams a day by continuous dosing, as opposed to Tempsirolimus, which is given 25 milligrams intravenous weekly. Side effect profile is very similar, and I'll talk about that in a second. But an illustration of the biology of kidney cancer, getting to your point, Neil, is that when one asks the question, could it be that when you stop responding to an anti-angiogenic agent like sunitinib or serafinib or bevacizumab, that the biology of the cancer is driven by a different pathway? So the question that Rad asked was, after you progress on sunitinib and serafinib, and you give a person either an mTOR inhibitor called RAD or placebo, what's the effect? And we now know, based upon Bob Mozer's oral presentation and a manuscript that will be out very shortly, is that we have a two-fold improvement in progression-free survival for the RAD-treated patients. The remarkable thing, which many people might not realize and the practicing oncologist has to embrace is that the response rate, objective response rate to RAD in that study was 1%. So when you're in practice and you're giving a person an mTOR inhibitor, the expectation should be absence of progression more than presence of response. So getting back to our waterfall thing, did they do that with RAD? And Absolutely. You, and literally people aren't responding? Right. So you remember in a waterfall plot, there's a line at which people have what's called a resist objective response. Only 1% of the people got below that line, but more than 50% of the people were below the x-axis showing that they did not have disease that was progressing. So I guess the natural question is combining these agents. And can you talk about what we know and what we're trying to figure out? Right. So the challenge the kidney cancer doctors like myself have, and we have to be careful about our predecessors, because we all grew up in an era of if one is good, two must be better. And that was the basis for which we all started our careers with cytotoxic chemotherapy. MOP. And what we don't know yet is whether if one targeted therapy is better, is good, will two targeted therapies be better? So let me give you some examples that were presented at this ASCO meeting. First of all, recognize that it appears that when you combine two anti-angiogenic agents, sunitinib and bevacizumab, serafinib and bevacizumab, 
the toxicity associated with those two agents in combination prevents the doses being the same as what you would give them as single agents. Now, we remember this from our cytotoxic days, but remember that those are cytotoxic agents. We want to maintain drug on target as long as possible. So Jeff Sossman gave a presentation, which was a summary of his serafinib bevacizumab data, and the dose of serafinib that he could give is 200 milligrams a day, 25% of the usual dose of 400 BID, and only half the dose of bevacizumab, 5 milligrams IV every two weeks. And what was that because of? It's because of hypertension. It's because of asthenian fatigue. It's because of dose-limiting hand-foot syndrome. It's an exacerbation of existing toxicities. So the critical thing for the practicing physician, in my view, is not to assume that two drugs are better than one. Now, the one place where we think we can combine two drugs at full doses is mTOR inhibition and angiogenesis inhibition, especially with bevacizumab. So there was a very nice phase one study presented that combined RAD and bevacizumab, and it looks like you can give full doses. The activity looks interesting, but please remember this. We now have to struggle with the same things that prostate cancer and breast cancer have struggled with, and that is we have to prove to the clinical oncologist that combining therapies and the associated potential toxicities is equal to or better than sequencing those agents as monotherapies. I guess the thinking would be that assuming it's tolerable, what you're looking for is a big bang. And the big bang in kidney cancer we've not had. So despite the fact that we've approved four drugs with more on the way, the big bang in kidney cancer is something called a complete response. And despite all of our efforts with all of these agents and thousands of patients, complete responses are still pretty fleeting. But I mean, is that really necessary? And another model would be just keeping the patient from progressing for years and years. If only that were true. Is it possible, do you think? We're not there yet. And the reason for that, I think, is in part, we now know that we can do it for several years, but I'm not sure that the tumor is still not smarter than we are and figures out methods of resistance to grow around our inhibitors. So, yes, will we be happy with kidney cancer being labeled a chronic disease where people would live out the rest of their lives or close to it on therapy? Yes. But remember that these drugs still have chronic toxicities, we see patients all the time that come into the office, and I'm sure every oncologist has heard this. You know, the pill looks just like the Tylenol pill that I take out of my bathroom closet, and boy, it's causing me lots of toxicity. I'm not quite comfortable as much as I'd like to be. There are compliance issues with these drugs. So it's still giving targeted therapy that affects the quality of people's lives. I'm just kind of curious, how do you assess compliance? Because people always say cancer patients take their drugs, and then you see studies of pharmacy, whatever, and they don't. What do you think really happens, and how do you assess it in your patients? Well, I think it is an honest broker relationship between the physician and the patient. I think the most important thing that a physician has to do is to lay down the objectives of treatment, be honest with their patients, and say, look, if I give you this drug and I maintain the dose and I deal with your toxicity, I have a chance of significantly helping you. If we have to lower the dose, if you choose not to take the drug, or the toxicity causes you discomfort, we also have to recognize that the benefits of the drug will be diminished. And the reality is, as with anything else, it's a partnership between the patient and the doctor. And partnerships are best when you're honest. And when patients then come back in and said, Doc, you know, I know you wanted me to take it for four weeks, but I could only tolerate three weeks and two days, then you can start to figure out how to work around that, as opposed to, Doc, I took it for four weeks when they really didn't. One of the things we've seen with some of the oral antineoplastics, for example, capecitabine, is a subset of patients who continue taking the drug in spite of toxicity, get into a lot of problems because they don't want to stop taking it because right. of the cancer. Do you see that? Oh, absolutely. People... These are cancer patients. You know that, Neil. If they don't develop toxicity, they often say to us, Doc, it can't be working. I have to be having a side effect. And if they do develop toxicity, they say, Doc, does this mean it's working because I have to put up with this aggravation? And I don't think as a community, as an oncology community, we've done a good enough job yet 
of explaining to cancer patients this transition from IV therapy to oral therapy so that they understand that the delivery of our oral therapies, whether it's capecitabine, whether it is something for GIST or CML or kidney cancer, is a different approach to their cancer. The other part is the practice. I can tell you unequivocally, the reason I can give oral drugs successfully is not because I'm such a good doctor, it's because I have a great nurse. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) And, And every good doctor should have a great nurse because oral drugs, primarily in the office-based practice, are handled by your staff. Only when it reaches the level of intravenous fluids or medication, and I don't think we've done a good enough job as oncologists helping our staff being trained because they're the healthcare delivery team members that are often interfacing. And I can tell you, I'll give you one experience with Temsorolimus. So Temsorolimus is given IV weekly. And everybody was concerned, well, IV weekly, will my patient come back? It seems to be pretty frequent. What's the deal? I tell you that patients like to come in and connect with their healthcare team to manage toxicity, and they feel very cared for. And when you're on an oral drug, sometimes the frequency isn't the same because you don't expect the toxicity, and I think we underestimate the need to see them frequently. Also, I think there's some patients, I don't know what fraction, who I think get some kind of social benefit from the infusion room and talking to other patients. I think that percentage is high. I think they partner with the nurse. I mean, you know that they often come back and say, I want Mary because Mary gave it to me the last time. I like the way she gives it to me, and I like how she answers my questions. And yes, a support team, support services, and having other people there at the same time, it becomes a community. What about the issue, as long as we're talking about practical clinical issues, of the older patient with renal cell? You actually are part of a presentation here looking at serafinib specifically, elderly. Can you talk about what you saw there and also in your clinic how you approach the older patient? One of the things that we have at City of Hope is a cancer and aging program. I think we have to ask questions about how to give people of a certain age the therapies that we think they need, but also recognize that the goals for a 75-year-old are different than the goals for a 45-year-old. And I can tell you in the study that we presented with serafinib in the over 65 is that it does not appear that that drug presents any difficulty with administration when compared with the under 65 population. So, for example, in my own practice, if I have an asymptomatic person with metastatic kidney cancer that's 75 and I want to have a discussion around sunitinib versus serafinib, I often have a conversation saying that I may have to sacrifice a little bit of the benefit, but I may be able to give you a therapy that has a better quality of life component to it, and let's have that conversation. I've had 75-year-olds that come to me and say, if it's better and it's toxic, give it to me. I've had 75-year-olds that have come and said, I really want to be able to spend time with my family. I want to be able to continue to do the things that I want to do. I'll know that that other drug is always out there for me, but let's start with something that I'm going to tolerate better. So it sounds like your perception, I'm sure based on data and your own experience, is serafinib is better tolerated in older people? I think it is better tolerated. What specifically is the issue? Fatigue? Less fatigue, less hand-foot syndrome, less hypertension makes Mm. it better tolerated. Can you talk a little bit about what your current algorithm is for management in the first-line setting and where you think things are heading over the next, let's say, two or three years? Right. That's a great question. So we're members of NCCN. We have guidelines in 2008. We're about to revise them next month. So let me give you my sense of where things are. So let's first look at what we'll call the previously untreated patient. And let's assume that this patient either did or did not have a nephrectomy. For the younger patient without comorbid disease who is interested in a durable remission and can receive safely high-dose IL-2, it should still be part of the algorithm. Those patients are infrequent, but still for a selected patient population, high-dose IL-2 should be an option. And just parenthetically, what kind of numbers do you give to patients like that? Very simple. If I treat 100 patients with high-dose interleukin-2, selecting them based upon clear cell, no comorbid disease, good end-organ function, I tell them there's a 2 in 10 chance of having a response, 
and about 50% of the people that have a response can have a durable response, the answer being somewhere between 5 and 10% of everybody that's treated. Durable being how long? Well, we now know that we have 10 and 15-year survivors. And when they ask you about the downside? I tell them that it'll be the worst experience of their life. They should only receive it at a center where it's been given to hundreds of people. They should not be the new person on the block. They should receive it in a high-dose inpatient ICU-like fashion. And that they'll know after one cycle or two five-day hospitalizations whether they're going down the right path. Because if you don't see some benefit after the two five-day hospitalizations, more treatment is not going to get you anything. And they ask you in terms of what are some of the sort of quality life issues and sort of serious complication risks. Right. What you have to quote them is that the time that they're in the hospital, they'll be the most miserable experience of their life, and it is. Capillary leak syndrome, hypotension, azotemia, liver dysfunction, fatigue, anorexia, nausea and vomiting. It's a cytokine cascade that produces difficulty. The good news is that when IL-2 is stopped, all of that goes away. The good news is that if you obtain a remission with IL-2, it's unmaintained, which means you don't have to have anything else, and you go back fully to your life. And usually how long is the total duration of therapy? Three to four months. And I have to quote to people because it's honest, even though in my own practice it's infrequent, there is the chance of mortality. What's the risk? The published risk is originally 4 to 6%. I think in the hands of most experienced IL-2 treaters, at this moment it should be less than 1%, but it's not zero. We only treat people with high-dose IL-2 on study, and we do not treat people with IL-2 off of study. How many people a year? About 25 a year. What's the current study? The current study is the cytokine working group study where we're looking to categorize those people by genetic abnormalities that might benefit from IL-2 so that I can walk into a patient's room and say, you have a 4 in 10 chance of benefiting and a 2 in 10 chance of having a durable remission by looking at things like carbonic anhydrase 9, the genetic profile of the tumor, the histology. Has that been looked at retrospectively? It has, and we and others have looked at that. Carbonic anhydrase 9 appears to be a predictor of benefit because it is a downstream VHL product. Clear cell tumors benefit, whereas non-clear cell tumors do not. Mike Atkins and his group at Beth Israel put together an algorithm for what constitutes a more likely patient retrospectively. And the study that we're currently doing, which now has over 70 patients on it, is the first prospective evaluation of that. So let's get back to the first-line situation, the more common situation. Common patient, clear cell with clear cell features, level one evidence, sunitinib should be the treatment of choice. Other alternatives, level one evidence, bevacizumab and interferon in the untreated patient population. How about bevalone? Yeah, my own bias with bevalone is it's never been tested in phase three trials monotherapy, although many people believe that interferon doesn't contribute very much to the bevalone to the combination. I'll give you the following other observation from the Bernard Escudier presentation of a couple days ago, and that is he looked at progression-free survival in patients that received full doses of interferon versus progression-free survival in patients that received reduced doses of interferon. Parenthetically, much to our surprise, those that received lower doses of interferon had a longer progression-free survival than those that had a higher dose of interferon. So in the combination, we don't even know whether the dose of interferon that was part of the BEV interferon treatment needs to be that high. And we may have to revisit the question of maybe lower dose interferon being equally effective, possibly even more effective. What about just no interferon? So the data that we published in JCO, Ron Bukowski, myself, and others, is the monotherapy clearly has a response rate that is lower, and a progression-free survival that at least when compared study to study appears inferior to what the progression-free survival would be from the combination. Now you're talking about the BEV versus BEV plus erlotinib, which really was BEV versus BEV in a sense, since they were the same. Exactly. What about the issue, kind of getting back to what you were saying about serafinib being less toxic in the elderly in terms of quality of life? In a patient with non, and of course, and all this assumes reimbursement, we can get it, et cetera. I think BEV would stack up very well. And the reason for that is most oncologists have an extraordinary experience with BEV in lots of other places. They know how to give it. They know how to monitor it. They'd have to watch for the proteinuria and the hypertension and the other things that BEV causes. In a level playing field, 
As oncologists, I'd like to see a head-to-head. Prove to me with level one evidence which of those offers the greatest opportunity with careful assessment of quality of life. So, you know, we're always in a situation where we don't have the evidence we really want. Right now, I mean, do you consider, do you discuss, Bev? I mean, a patient says to you, cost is not an option. You know, you just tell me what the best therapy for me is. For my own practice, I would still choose sudetanib as the treatment of choice. Are you using Bevan Interferon? Uh, not using Bevan Interferon, mostly because of reimbursement issues. If it weren't a reimbursement issue, where would you place it? I think it would be equal to, as NCCN has placed it, level one evidence as an option for the previously untreated patient. The third option for the untreated patient, which gets to your question about the non-clear cell histology, is Tempsirolimus. So Tempsirolimus is an agent which is now commercially available for the group of patients that has what's called poor prognostic features. These are features like a lower hemoglobin, a poorer performance status, multiple sites of metastatic disease, a high corrected calcium. And the other thing about Tempsirolimus is the trial was the only trial in previously untreated patients, which included non-clear cell histologies. And in a patient population that has non-clear cell histologies, in a previously untreated patient, even though sunitinib is available, one has to really consider Tempsirolimus. In your clinical practice, do you see responses in this situation? Oh, absolutely. So in my practice, my paradigm is pretty simple. In a clear cell carcinoma patient with predominantly clear cell features, whether they have good intermediate or poor prognosis, my treatment of choice is sunitinib. If a person has any features that say that their prognosis is a little less well, such as primary tumor intact, non-clear cell histology, papillary, sarcomatoid, or other, temsorolimus is my treatment of choice. But you included sunitinib under poor prognosis, and that kind of is where TEM was studied. Why do you choose sunitinib? Because we have to remember that in the sunitinib randomized trial, it also included poor prognosis patients. The number of patients was only about 9% of the population, but it still also included that population of patients. So what about second line? So second line has now become much clearer. I mean, as a result of ASCO 2008, the question in second-line therapy was very clear, and that was, well, after you progress on one of these angiogenesis inhibitors, what do you do? Well, patients have been put on serafinib after sutent failure, sutent after bevacizumab failure, because those were the things that were available. And we now know that if you've progressed on angiogenesis blockade with serafinib or sunitinib or both, the benefits of RAD or an mTOR inhibitor are now level one evidence, phase three indicated. And I think that over time, when that finally comes out in manuscript, I suspect that I will, as part of NCCN, recommend that that have level one evidence in that setting for second line. Now, what do we know about second line therapy of one TKI after the other? We know that they're not entirely cross-resistant. So you can see serafinib benefit after sunitinib and vice versa. You can certainly see TKI benefit after bevacizumab failure. But one of the things that we don't know is we've not been able to quantitate that. We've not been able to get our hands around a true randomized trial. Most of those trials are 30, 40, 50 patients, prospective in that nature, characterizing the fact that you do see responses, but the magnitude and duration of those responses are not clear. What do you consider some of the most important phase three studies out there right now in renal cell? Let's stick with metastatic disease, and then we'll get to adjuvant. So the trials that are really going to help us understand the role for these agents are a couple things. We now know, as I shared with you before, that combinations of mTOR inhibition and angiogenesis inhibition with bevacizumab are combinations that can be given together. So there's a series of trials that are now beginning comparing RAD and bevacizumab or temsorolimus and bevacizumab to bevacizumab and interferon. So that's in the frontline setting. So that will answer for us whether two drugs against two different pathways are better than just angiogenesis inhibition. The other trial that's important, second trial that's important, is in sunitinib failures, just to your point before, should we give a person another angiogenesis inhibitor or should we put them on an mTOR inhibitor? So that trial is going to be in sunitinib failures comparing temsorolimus to serafinib. And we'll be able to say to the clinical oncologist, what's the basis with which you would go from sunitinib to serafinib versus sunitinib to temsorolimus? 
And then the third trial is basically the cooperative group best trial. And that's a trial that is trying to address, can we give combinations safely? And if we can, is there a winner that we could then ask in phase three trials? The good news and bad news about that trial is that trial has been years in the making. It's now finally recruiting, but industry has taken up the slack and is basically asking those questions in phase three trials, not waiting for the best results. The best trial has bevacizumab, temsorolimus, and serafinib, and it compares those drugs in combination versus a bevacizumab-only group in a randomized phase two trial. This is the ECOG study? This is the ECOG trial. And so the control is Bev alone? Correct. So what happened to interferon? I think you'd have to ask ECOG about what happened to interferon. I think many of us, that trial was designed at a time when people believed that the Bev alone data was sufficient for that arm. If I were designing such a trial today, knowing the results of the two randomized Bev interferon trials, I would really have liked to see Bev interferon as the control but that wasn't the cooperative group's choice. Do you think that that's the kind of study that can be implemented well in a community setting? Absolutely. I would think so. Absolutely. I think it would be kind of desirable. In fact, I would argue that ECOG and other groups that are participating, 80% of the patients will come from community practices. But I mean, what you talked about earlier, which is a lot of caution about combining agents off-study when you don't really know what's going on, as opposed to doing it within a study sort of framework to kind of protect the patient as well as giving the community physician the opportunity to start to experiment with the combinations, get some experience, and to see the pluses and minuses of that approach. What about mTOR and one of the TKIs? What do we know about that? What we know is that when you combine them, they're very difficult. It's not impossible, but it appears that TOR inhibition and VEGF receptor inhibition, when combined, you cannot maintain the doses of both of the targets at the same time. But yet, BEV, you can. But for some reason, the ligand inhibition with BEV, you can. Interesting. That's what makes BEV a very potent combinable agent and also makes, going full circle to some of the comments that we had before, some of these drugs have off-target toxicity because they're not just pure angiogenesis inhibitors. So there's a drug like axitinib, there's a drug like pazopinib, there are drugs that are more pure VEGF receptor TKIs that may be imminently more combinable with TOR inhibition than the ones who hit multiple targets, not only the VEGF receptor. They're more specifically targeted to specific VEGF receptors? Or? And do not have off-target activity, correct. What about the adjuvant setting? What's being done there, and what do you think is going to be done there? Well, we're more than halfway through an absolutely spectacular trial. So the cooperative group trial, intergroup trial, is a comparison of placebo, serafinib, and sunitinib in high-risk resected patients. We've put lots of patients on it at City of Hope. I heard last, just a couple days ago, that we're more than 800 patients into our 1,300-patient trial, so we're more than halfway there. I think anecdotally, I think that it should be interesting because treating a patient with these targeted therapies in the adjuvant setting is really different than treating a patient in the metastatic setting. Adjuvant patients expect different things. Their tolerance for toxicity is quite different. And remember, this is a year worth of therapy. Again, for those of us that have been around long enough, we remember when adjuvant breast was a couple years, and then it was a year, and now it's six months or shorter. We don't know how long that's that, chemo. And that's chemo. But the hormones are going longer. And the hormones are going the other direction, right, which like is more than five. Years, right. So we need to find out, one, is do these targeted agents work in that setting? And remember that we don't know, theoretically, the adjuvant setting is what? The adjuvant setting is patients with micrometastatic disease. We have not yet answered the question of what is the role of anti-angiogenesis in micrometastatic disease. It could be that angiogenesis isn't as robust and as such can't be inhibited as well in that micrometastatic setting. So what I say to patients and doctors that call me is although one is enticed to use these targeted agents outside of a clinical trial in the high-risk receptive patient, I'm a firm believer in waiting for level one evidence, and I would argue against that. 
And that's why we continue to put patients on this trial when there's a placebo control. Does that mean you won't do it? I will not do it, have not done it. And in fact, to the other side, I have had patients referred to me where they have started adjuvant therapy, and after they talk to me, they stop it, recognizing that we don't know whether there's benefit. Now, of course, you don't know in the trial whether they're getting a placebo or not, but I imagine in a lot of patients, after a while, you can pretty well make a pretty good guess. Yeah, I think we know that they're on an agent. I think that we still have some difficulty knowing which agent they're on. And the fact that it's going to have hundreds of control patients with placebo, I expect that we're going to know whether we have the first adjuvant therapy for kidney cancer with one of these targeted therapies. When you start seeing people getting symptoms and you start getting suspicious they're getting an active agent, what happens as you start to head out towards a year? Are you having a lot of people drop out? We've had many conversations with people. And, you know, ultimately a clinical trial is done on behalf of people. And at the end of the day, people are in control of their disease and their life. And we've had very frank discussions about if it's too hard, then we should stop. Balance the risks and benefits. And I have to tell you that we've had several people who, during the course of the year, have said, I've had enough and I need to just go back to my life. It's going to be the unusual patient that can actually put up with the year's worth of therapy, but we'll see. Hmm. That's interesting. Any other adjuvant concepts out there that you think are interesting or being looked at? Sure. There are two others. There's a drug called Oncophage, which is a autologous vaccine where you take the person's tumor and vaccinate them against that. It's a company called Antigenics had a very difficult time and pathway in the United States getting that vaccine approved. It was just approved in Russia. The implications of that for the United States are unclear. It works. In a subset of lower risk, high risk resected patients, there appears to be a subset analysis that shows a group that benefits. And that's the problem because in the randomized trial, the overall benefit was not statistically significant, but a subset was. And it's only been looked at in the adjuvant setting? In the adjuvant setting. Hmm. The other trial is the Wilex trial with antibodies to G250, and this is a trial that's from Germany. It's almost completed accrual, and we're waiting for enough events to see whether it is better than placebo, and it is given intravenously weekly. Any questions that you get from Oxen practice that we haven't talked about? I think the most common question and the most common consultation that I see is doctors are still not yet comfortable with toxicity management of these class of agents. And I think that that's part of our responsibility to actually educate them about that and their staff, and we talked about that before, because we are seeing many patients who I think have had inadequate trials of these targeted agents because they're stopped prematurely for toxicity that other physicians might have been able to manage with more experience. I heard Brian Reaney make the following comment, which I thought was a good one. He said, I don't think I really knew how to manage my patients until I've treated about 25 people on an agent. And in an oncology practice where kidney cancer is infrequent, it takes a long time to do that. So if a Brian Reaney says that, where he's seeing kidney cancer patients only, I'd ask the oncologist to be patient and understand how to manage the toxicity, because then they'll see the benefit. What specific management strategies, other than dose reduction or changing the schedule or whatever, do you think are out there that are effective that maybe people aren't as aware of as they should be? Right. The single most important management strategy that my nurse tells me about all the time is anticipating the toxicities before they occur, letting the patient know what the experience is, when to call, and then what to do, and not to wait until the toxicity is so robust that the only alternative is to stop the drug and think about something else. But, I mean, once you start encountering some of these toxicities, even fatigue, hand, foot, et cetera, are there things that you can actually do to ameliorate it? Well, I think that the easiest ameliorating benefit is stopping the drug, restarting at a lower dose, and recognizing that you may be able to dose escalate later, but the further into the toxicity, the longer the patient will be off of treatment before it reverses. You know, we had Mario LaCouture from Northwestern, who's now developed a whole clinic looking at dermatologic problems with people who are getting biologics, particularly EGFR inhibitors. And I'm kind of curious what you think is going on in terms of the hand-foot that's seen, with particularly the TKI, specifically serafinib, and how it differs from other hand-foots with other agents that we've seen. Well, I don't think any of us have explained it well. 
I'll tell you what my own bias is, and that is that we don't realize how much we traumatize our hands and feet every day through our normal activities, and that angiogenesis is part of wound healing. And when you inhibit angiogenesis and inhibit wound healing, you also inhibit the ability for these hands and feet to get better. And that's why when you stop these drugs and you take the person off for a period of time, your hands and feet get better very, very quickly. Wow, that's interesting. So do you advise patients to be more careful with their hands and feet? Yes, and in fact, we even ask patients what their occupation is before we start. We talk to them about, do you have to be suspicious about certain things? I mean, we've had golfers that can't golf, who's a retired person, and they say, I can't even get into my shoes. We've had people that are using their hands, and we ask them to be sensitive to the fact that the first thing that they will feel is discomfort in their hands, that's when they need to let us know. And the other thing I would just tell you, because I think that as oncologists, we sometimes forget about this, these patients develop non-ulcerative stomatitis. Hmm. They develop sore mouths. With both TKIs? Right. That causes them difficulty eating and swallowing. So pain. Pain. Redness? There is inflammation, but it's not a rip-roaring mucositis that you would have associated with a cytotoxic agent. I mean, is it a neuropathy? It is not a neuropathy because it reverses very quickly. Hmm. So what do you do about it? Just, again, modify the dose. Right, but remember that when you look at the total of toxicities, grade 3 and grade 4 toxicities for kidney cancer patients for these drugs, infrequent. But you can have many grade one and grade two toxicities that alter how a person feels day in and day out, and they still have to be managed. Sounds really like a chronic disease model. It is, and the other part of it which is unique for the oncologist is because many of us left our internal medicine behind a long time ago. We trained and then we trained, and now we have to go back and revisit antihypertensive therapy and how best to offer that. We have to revisit our dermatologic manifestations, and I'll tell the practicing oncologist my own experience, even at a comprehensive cancer center, we understand side effect management better than some of our subspecialty colleagues who are only seeing it for the first time. So although you might want to send off your dermatologic manifestations to a dermatologist to manage, we don't have a person like that at City of Hope at Northwestern, and we have to really figure out what's the first line of defense.